Almighty God, we gather before you, thanking you that we are loved by you, not because of any works that we do, but because of the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. Today, we pray for our church and for others around our church this week. Father, as we approach Easter next week, we pray for our members who will be visiting with unbelieving families. Father, we pray that you would give us a special measure of boldness and winsomeness and humility as we talk about Jesus with our families. Father, we pray that you would fear, free us from the fear of man that so often just holds us back as we should be talking about the most important issues of life and death. Father, as we gather here, we pray that many would join us next Sunday. We pray that you'd give us a, a warm hospitality to those who come and that your gospel will be made clear. Father, we pray that you would use this church to clearly explain what Jesus Christ has done so that more people would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Would you work through us, we pray? Father, as we gather as a church this morning, we also remember Kendall Baptist Church in Miami and Pastor Matt Diaz. And we thank you for your faithfulness to them as they celebrate five years today as a church plant. Father, we pray that you would provide a building for this sister church. We pray that as they meet with their landlord this week, that you would give them an uncommon generosity to their church, that they would have all of their needs met, that this church, Kendall Baptist, and others around it would grow and prosper so that many churches around us would grow and be able to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our church and our members that we would grow in holiness. As we study your word today, we pray for your conviction and growth in us, even as we see your word. Father, we pray for any today who are struggling with unforgiveness. Would you allow us, O oh God, to see unforgiveness as sin? Would you remind us today from your word how much we have been forgiven? Father, would you give us today a supernatural ability to love others, to forgive others? Open our spiritual eyes now as we, pr as we read your word. Speak to us. Father, I pray that you would work in me and give me words to speak and clarity as I make your, your word clear. We pray all this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Victor Hugo sought to describe an uncommon picture of radical love in his classic novel, Les Mis. Maybe you'll remember the scene. Jean Valjean is the main character, and he's a former convict. After 19 years, he's released from prison and is shown kindness by a priest, giving him a place to stay. During the night, this former convict gets up and robs the priest. 
Despite the fact that the priest had been trying to help him, he steals the man's precious silverware and silver plates. And he escapes in the night, returning the priest's kindness with thievery. Well, the next morning, Jean Valjean is caught with the silverware by a group of soldiers. And he is brought back to the priest. Now justice will come for this convict. He'll get what he deserves. But the twist in the story comes when instead of signing off for this thief to go back to jail, the priest turns to him and corrects him for not also taking the silver candlesticks. And the soldiers standing by are baffled as they listen to the priest. They say, you mean to tell me that you gave him your silverware last night? You mean to say that you are happy for him to have your silver plates? The priest says, of course. I just wish he would take more. The convict is then let go by the soldiers. The handcuffs come off. He goes free. He's sent away from the priest with far more silver than he originally had, despite his ungrateful wrongs. What Victor Hugo captures here is a powerful scene of radical love. And our world, no doubt, stands and applauds such love when we see it, does it not? Our world needs such love. And yet, this is not instinctive to the world around us. Our world cannot produce such supernatural love. What is this love? How do we get it? Well, in this passage today, as we return back to the book of Luke, Jesus shows us how this love is to typify his disciples. We return back to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. If you haven't already, just open your Bibles and follow along as I just continue to work through Luke chapter 6 as a church. You'll remember our context as we're returning to this sermon that Jesus is preaching to the people there. Jesus had been rejected by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. His love for a tax collector was just too scandalous for them. And his, his love for a man with a withered hand was just misplaced. It was on the wrong day of the week for them to be able to accept it. And so Jesus then turns from those religious leaders and he chooses his own disciples. He begins teaching them. That's what we saw last time as we came to the book of Luke. This sermon of Jesus teaching his disciples what he expects of them and giving them these strange blessings that we call the Beatitudes, and offering these strange warnings or woes to those who pursued the things of the world, like the Pharisees. So having set expectations, he now will address whoever will listen to him. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, I wonder today if you are one of the ones who will hear what Jesus teaches. I don't think Jesus is talking to those who are within physical reach of his voice. As if he's saying to, to anyone who can catch this, this word that I'm saying, you can hear it from afar. No, Jesus is recognizing that some of those who are listening to him that day, like the Pharisees, 
think that they are listening. They think they hear what the preacher is saying. They might even think that they agree. And yet, they are not truly being taught. Their hearts are not truly being changed. Oh, church, this should frighten us, even right now. Might we not do the same today? Pray even now as I explain God's word that you would not listen and be unchanged. That God would work even now in your heart. Well, this passage that follows teaches us about the love that Jesus Christ expects. How should disciples love one another? That's the driving question I want to just explore together as a church together. If you're taking notes, I'll answer this question just moving through five points briefly about the love that Christ expects. We're going to see what it is, what it's not, what it looks like, what this love sees, and where to find it. So I pray that as we, we study Christ's sermon here, that he will create in us this love that he expects from us. So first, what it is. It is a selfless love. Verse 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Here we find these four commands, which seem to then be repeated throughout the rest of Christ's sermon, showing the way that Christ's disciples are expected to love. Love, do good, pray, and bless. Notice how all-encompassing they are. To love comes from the heart, and to do good requires taking physical actions. To bless includes our speech as we wish God's favor on others. And to pray includes our requests to God as we ask for him to bless others. God, Christ expects that his disciples will be utterly for the good of others. But notice who this loving and doing good and blessing and praying is directed to. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What kind of upside-down kingdom is this? This is no ordinary love. This is a love to those who you wouldn't naturally love, those who wrong you. I wonder, even as I'm speaking this morning, if you can picture someone in your mind's eye who has wronged you. I wonder if you can think uh, of a face or a relationship that comes to mind and you feel like you were in the wrong. It might help you as you listen to the rest of the sermon. The enemy here is an adversary, someone who's opposed to you. You're to love them. The one who hates you, well, that's pretty self-explanatory. They don't like who you are. Well, you're to do good to them. The one who curses you, they, they use their words to tear you down. Well, you're to use your words to build them up. The one who misuses their, their power and authority over you, who, who abuses you, 
you're to pray for them. Beloved, let me just pause here, by the way, and just acknowledge, I don't think this verse is condoning abuse. If you are under abuse, know that the, the misuse of authority over you is, is not your fault. Abusive behaviors are inexcusable. You should go to the authorities. You should get help from Christian, other Christians or from pastors. It's the most loving thing to do. But even as you go, pray for the person that's abusing you. The point of these verses is that those who will be disciples of Jesus Christ will counterintuitively love others, even those who are naturally against them. That's what selfless love is. So what it is. Number two, what it's not. It's not a selfish love. Look down at verses 32 and 30 through 34. Here, Jesus seems to be pausing and clarifying, making sure that we've caught the fact that he's referring to our enemies, to those who wrong us. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You see, this type, this is the type of love that the, the Pharisees had, the religious leaders. They could easily love their own. This was normal. But what about a, a rabbi like Jesus loving a tax collector like Levi. This is the, the, the love that was natural to perhaps other tax collectors. You could easily lend to another tax collector. But what about a man like Zacchaeus giving generously from what he had to others who can't give back? That's an unexpected level of love. You see, loving others for your own benefit is not true love. That's a false love. Jesus says, when love is for your selfish benefit, it has no benefit. That means God does not commend that kind of love. You've gotten your reward. You're doing it so that you can receive back. What benefit is that to you in the final day? This is loving someone transactionally. I'll pay you in return for something back. This is a natural, worldly way to think about love. Scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. But friends, no one looks at a quid pro quo and says, how beautiful. No one says, how divine, how otherworldly that was. No, we say, how, how natural, how expected. Jesus is saying that a test of the authenticity of your love is how it stands when you get nothing out of it. No recognition. No returned favors. No future benefit. You can't even get a future benefit. So you're not serving with some hidden agenda. You're not loving others for some relational strategy for how it will help you out. Isn't this transactional love so much of what our nature is? Think about it. We, we do this constantly. We love, we serve, we do good, we bless, we help in hopes of something in return. 
I'll stay in this church if it benefits me. I'll come if my needs are met. We say to our spouse, honey, I'll, I'll take care of the kids tomorrow night if you give me the next night off. Or to a coworker, I, I, sure, I'll help take your shift at work. But it, just remember it, and then when I need your help, you can pay me back. Friends, you can make these exchanges with someone, but, but don't call this love. Even sinners who don't know Christ gladly do the same. Christ's disciples will be marked by a love that is not transactional. So it's a love that gladly stays at a church, even when it's not easy for you, or there are aspects of that church that are not your preferences. It's a love that gladly helps with the kids. Again, freeing up your spouse because you want to serve them. It's a love that picks up the harder shift at work or the harder task, even when you know you're about to retire that one, and it does nothing good to help you out. Christ expects a love that is not driven by what you will get. Thirdly, think about the love that Christ expects. What does it look like? Number three, what does it look like? Jesus here in this sermon that he's, he's preaching there on the plain making these points to his hearers, seems to stop and give illustrations for them so that he can connect it to their lives. He gives us examples, examples here. And his examples are, are personal. They're shocking. They're, they're costly examples. They're, they're sacrificial. And honestly, they're rather uncomfortable examples to read. Let me just briefly caveat what I'm about to say here. I do know that Scripture teaches elsewhere Christians sometimes should speak up when wronged. There are expectations for how we respond when wronged. Just for example, Romans 13 tells us that the state is expected to carry out justice. There's other examples. You can talk about that later today. Uh, and, and in fact, actually, our, our next study in Luke will talk about uh, not turning in a blind eye, not following a blind leader. I'm not going to go there now. Instead, I want Jesus' message to just kind of have its full force with us today. I don't want to pull the punch for what Jesus is saying here. We find here a general rule that should be convicting to most of us. Selfless love for Jesus' disciples looks radically costly. That's what he wants us to see. Look at verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. A strike on the cheek would have been an insult. It would have been a shame on the receiver. When Christ's disciples are shamed, they do not retaliate. So Christians are not the ones to race to a defamation lawsuit. Christians are not the ones to quickly jump on social media and defend ourselves, explaining why we were unjustly slapped. No, we are slow to retaliate. We turn the other cheek. In your Christian marriage, when an insult is thrown, you are not quick to shoot an insult back. Christians, with this type of love, have the ability to accept wrongs against them. I wonder, do you have that ability? Look at the next example, verse 29. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
So he's saying here, if someone steals your coat, don't refuse to give them your shirt as well. Christians do not seek revenge, but as Daryl Bach observes, they remain potentially vulnerable to a second attack. Disciples of Christ know that loving their enemy, loving the souls of the person who's in the middle of robbing them, that that person's soul is more important than any material possession you might have. I wonder whom you have been stolen from. When someone takes from you, do you retaliate or do you give more? Here's a form of stealing you might not have thought much about. Think about when someone steals some of your reputation from you, speaks negatively about you in a way that's not accurate. We call this slander. It's common in all sorts of small ways in our day and in many churches. When someone speaks wrongly about you, Do you steal back from them? Do you take some of their reputation back? Or do you give more? Do you say, yeah, they spoke poorly about me, but actually they don't know the half of how bad I actually am. Look at another example of selfless love, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you. Very comprehensive, by the way. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Christians have been given far more than we ever deserve. Why should we not freely give to others? Some of us think that we should only give to others when it's deserved, when they deserve it. And yet we want to receive even when we don't deserve it. Friends, we make excuses about giving all the time. There's an old Scottish pastor who served in Scotland, Robert, Robert Murray McShane, who dealt with these same excuses that we make to giving freely. He was preaching to his congregation 200 years ago. Listen to what he says to his congregation. I'm going to quote the whole thing. It's worth paying attention, all right? So here's the Scottish pastor talking about excuses. He says, Dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made over in the image of Jesus Christ. Well, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So your objection, number one, is my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where would we have been? Objection number two. The poor, they are undeserving. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for them? I will give to the good angels. No, but no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three. The poor might abuse it if I give to them. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample under his blood, that most would despise it, that many would have made an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much and give often. Give freely to the vile and to the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. 
Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his word is more blessed to give than to receive. I think he's right. May we give and expect nothing back. This, by the way, is what Jesus said again down in verse 35. He says that we are to give expecting nothing in return. Friends, are there strings attached to your giving? Jesus summarizes these examples, these illustrations is giving with what has come to know, be known as the golden rule, down in verse 31. If you wish that others would do, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is nothing new in the New Testament, by the way. Jesus here seems to be quoting from Leviticus 19, where God already said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Christ has given these radical illustrations for what this, this selfless love, this costly love would look like. And now, now he just gives us this paradigm that just blows it out of the water. This command is extreme. The more you think about it, the more you realize it's virtually impossible to do in your own power. Everyone likes the idea of the golden rule. We like to think of it for someone else. But until we think about how truly high that standard is for us, if you could pick how others would treat you, what would you pick? How would people deal with you if you could always choose? The depth of love from your spouse that you really would love. The graciousness that you would love to have in a good friend. The generosity of people giving to you even when you don't deserve it. The patience you would just love to have a little bit more of from your family and friends. This level of love is incredible. Jesus says, as you would like others to love you, love others. This is an astounding level of grace. That's what we see next. Point number four what this love sees. And what I mean here is Jesus seems to consider this grace that he's requiring of his disciples, this natural disposition of a disciple for otherworldly love, and it, he seems to be telling us, you will have to view others with abundant grace. You're just going to have to. You're going to have to look at others and just give grace like, over and beyond what's natural to you. He gives us four statements, jump down to verse 37, that relate to how you see with this type of love, how you judge others. I think these four statements kind of belong together as a cohesive picture, so let me just read them back to get back. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here, Jesus gets to how we should view others when we are wronged. These words are, by the way, some of the most quoted words of Jesus Christ, and arguably some of the most misquoted words of Christ. Judge not is such an easy mantra of our day. 
And what the world thinks when it reads this is don't tell others that what they're doing is wrong. Leave all negative evaluations to God alone. Judge not. You should just be nice. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, it can't be. First of all, Jesus isn't doing that. He's constantly telling people that what they're doing is wrong. And secondly, he's constantly expecting his disciples to do the same. Just look at where we'll be next week. We'll, we're going to be told that to avoid being a blind man, being led by a blind man, we must make judgments. Or think about other places across the whole New Testament, like 2 Timothy 4, where elders are commanded to rebuke and to reprove. At times, they're told to do so sharply. Or in 1 Corinthians 5, where Scripture tells the church as a whole church to make judgments about others inside the church and about their sin. So then what is happening here if Jesus is saying, judge not? Again, I think these verses are best when taken together. You see, Jesus qualifies what he means. The kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about here is a condemning judgment, a non-forgiving judgment. It's one that doesn't give in good measure. So you should make judgments and evaluations. If you don't, you won't be able to follow 99% what Scripture teaches. But you should make your judgments in a way that shows you are not the judge. You are not the one to condemn. You are also a sinner, and you are quick to forgive. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, we are to be those who are also under the law. Even here, we see that. We see that reminder. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. The implication is we evaluate remembering that we are also under the law. We are also sinners needing forgiveness ourselves. So, beloved, what about you? Do you live your life condemning those around you? Is there any critical spirit found in you? Is there, is there anyone in your life who, if, if you were honest, you might have a small sense of smugness about? If you were to just bluntly verbalize what you feel deep down inside, you'd probably just say, I don't think they measure up. Anyone that, if you were, you, you were captain of the team, probably just wouldn't make the cut. They wouldn't get chosen. Church, when we see someone in sin, when we see someone who isn't living rightly, we don't sit above them in judgment. Oh no. We sit with a longing compassion as fellow sinners who do not condemn. We leave that to our Father. If they don't repent... We see our sin, and we ache for them to repent. And if they do repent, actually regardless of whether they repent, we forgive them with just an abundant measure of grace. This is what Christians are to be. They are to be abundant grace givers. How, how abundantly should you give grace? 
how, how overflowing should your grace be? Jesus tells us. Verse 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. So the picture here is of a seller who is selling grain at the marketplace. And a generous measuring basket would be filled up to good measure. Then the grain would be pressed down into the basket. And then the basket would be shaken together to make sure the grain settles into every nook and cranny. And then it would be put more would be put on top so that it's literally running over the basket. And then the basket would be placed in the lap of the buyer so that it's spilling off onto his lap. There's just grain going everywhere. The picture is an, a picture of overflowing grace given. Disciples who give out forgiveness and love abundantly. Is there any nook or cranny in your measuring cup of love that is empty? Is there any place that you could shake around your measuring cup and fit more grace in? To, to give more grace in your relationships, in your home, in your church, with your friends, in public. When you're in conversation with another church member and you speak about someone not present, do you heap mounds and mounds of grace into the conversation? Are you searching in your conversations to give more and more reasons for the benefit of the doubt in others? What about the way you think about even other churches? It's so easy to desire to do things in a healthy way as a church and turn into a judgmental church. Oh, let us be a church that pursues health and does not conflate that with judgment. Does not conflate discernment with judgment. Just because we're discerning doesn't mean we are condemning. This is the love that Christ expects of his disciples. We should conclude, let's consider fifthly regarding this love, where to find it. If you've been listening to anything I'm telling you today, you know that this love does not come naturally from inside of you. How can you possibly do anything this text is asking? How could you possibly judge not, to not condemn others? How could you possibly have a genuine love for your enemies? Or to give this abundant measure of grace? Or to bless from your heart those who curse you? This call is immense. Beloved, we need something beyond ourselves in this giving of grace. In my, in my open illustration, I, I shared how the priest who forgave Jean Valjean gave his silver back to him, a thief. And as he gives this abundant silver back mercifully, he says this profound line touching on this idea of transformation. Listen to what he says in the book. He says, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs and the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness, and with my mercy, I have bought your soul for God. Hugo Victor's imagery is trying to catch 
this compelling force of mercy redeeming a sinner. But friends, we have a far truer and far better redemption, a far better vision of mercy which motivates us. We are bought back not with silver, but with blood. Look at verse 35 and 36. Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Chris Boynton, has God been kind to you? Has been God been kind to you in your ungratefulness? Has God been kind to you in the evil of your sin? Be merciful as your Father is merciful. How has your Father been merciful to you? Friends, when we see these words, love your enemies, we should remember that we were God's enemies. Only one person has perfectly loved his enemies. Only one person has perfectly done good to those who hated him, has perfectly blessed when cursed. When abused, he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Church, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies with God. The, the all-powerful, the, the omniscient God of the universe, who in his complete perfection of mercy, perfection has never and could never have even a spot of impurity in the oceans of his righteousness. This God created us. This God owns us. This God designed us. This God provides for us. And this God has endured our rebellion against him. We have told him constantly in our actions, in our attitudes, and with the wishes of our hearts, what we think we want, what we think we deserve. We are ungrateful. We have received so much. We have received food and breath and air and clothing and relationships and wealth and family and spouses. And yet we find so many reasons to be ungrateful and to still say it isn't enough. And God is patient with us. The Bible teaches that God's zeal burns white hot against our sin. We were at enmity with God, and yet while we were enemies with God, Christ came. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, do you want to be a child of God? Well, then you must look like your father. Do you want to be a son of the Most High? Do you want to have your father's likeness about you to take after him? 
well, then you must look like his amazing love, a bewildering standard of grace. This love is first found in God himself. And then it works in those who are sons of the Most High. He must work it in you as you are his son or daughter to run to him, plead to him that he would give you this love. Live not in ungratefulness, but in thankfulness for the work of Jesus Christ. Behold the love of Christ for his enemies, and as you behold his love, pray that he would give it to you. What kind of church would we be if five or ten years from now we just were continually building and building around a beholding of God's gracious love towards us and then applying it in every relationship in our church? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He has been merciful to us. Let's pray that he'd work this in us. Pray with me now. Almighty God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That while we were enemies with God, you have loved us. We thank you for loving us time and again, even now, as we act like enemies, despite it not being our true nature. Even this week, you have loved us, and we thank you, Jesus Christ. Would you work this love in us as your church, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.